Hi, my name is Pastor Paul Goddard, and I would like to welcome you to the Sunday Sermon podcast series from Bethel Assembly of God. In these podcasts, we will be sharing our Sunday morning messages so that you can keep up with all the teachings that are going on here at Bethel. We want to invite you to join us in person on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. at 6029 Lapeer Road in Burton, Michigan. Bethel Assembly of God, we are a family. And as family, we grow. And as family, we go. I hope this message blesses and encourages you. Thank you. So today, we are going to be in Acts chapter 2. And we are going to be in verses 42 through 47. So I'm going to give you a moment to turn there real quick while I, I share this little story. Uh, so when I was 10 years old, like every 10-year-old in the late 80s, I wanted a video game system. I really did. We had an Atari, but it wasn't my Atari. It was my brother-in-law's Atari, and it w eventually was going to go away. So I had set my heart on something. It was called a Turbo Graphics 16. Now, if you have never heard of the Turbo Graphics 16, there is a reason for it. It was a Japanese game system that got imported to the United States. And this game system was the first 16-bit game system in the world. It was amazing. It was awesome. It had arcade-quality video games, graphics, and it was so exclusive and so expensive that you could only get it through the Sears catalog. That was it. You couldn't find it in the store. You had to special order it. So I begged my mom for it, naturally. That was my first stop. I begged and I begged. Nothing. We lived next door to my grandma, and I tried to get her to understand what a huge, monumental, and important moment in time that this was for me and kids all over the world. Nothing. I got nothing out of that. Um, I pleaded with my dad. And here is where my breakthrough happened. Because you have to understand this about my dad. He was lover of all things technology. We had a computer in our house before our schools had computers. Um, we had a full color screen Windows computer while I was still learning to type on an Apple IIe with the little green cursors that you couldn't actually read and everything that was going on. He loved technology, so when I told him about how advanced this video game system was, he got excited for me, that I wanted it and it was going to be there. But he added a catch to it. See, what he said is, he wasn't going to buy it for me. Now, that's a pretty big catch when you're 10 years old. He agreed that if I could earn the first $300 towards purchasing this system, that he would pay for the rest that's like a victory. He's going to pay for part of it. So I worked for six months to earn $300, which seems ridiculous now. But you got to remember, back in 1989, people didn't pay kids like $15 an hour to do something. Um, like if I mowed my grandma's lawn, I got five bucks. If I mowed our lawn, I got nothing. So I worked and I worked, and I finally raised that $300. And when I did, my dad and I went to the Sears catalog department, and I proudly ordered my TurboGrafx-16 because my dad kept his end of the bargain. And so then I waited. You got to remember, this is 1989. There's no Amazon Prime delivery at all. 
So when you ordered something, you actually had to wait for it. It wasn't like, oh, I had to wait two days. It was 14 long, grueling, torturous days of waiting for my new video game system. And we got the phone call, and it arrived. So we went to Sears, and at that moment, I was the happiest 10-year-old on the planet. Nobody could top me. So we got home, and my dad unpackages it and begins to hook it up because he didn't trust me to hook it up that we had just spent all this money on. So it turns on, and it's glorious. I mean, it's fantastic. It's shiny, it's beautiful, the graphics are bright. I'm just about to play Joe Montana football when the unthinkable thing happens. There was a freak power surge that came through the adapter that plugged into the TV, and it fried the whole thing, and it never worked again. What had happened is my dad had plugged in the adapter into the wrong part, and the TV blew it out. My perfect moment in time was completely ruined, and I sat there in tears. I said, we could just get another one, and my dad said, no. If it's going to break like this, remind it, it, it didn't break because it was cheap. It broke because it was hooked up wrong. If it's going to break like this, we're not going to buy another one. And I ended up with a Nintendo just like every other kid in my neighborhood. So I was not, I didn't have anything else in it. My father was not perfect. Sometimes his promises, his plans, the things he did, didn't always happen the way he said they would. I'm not a perfect father either. Sometimes I have to work late, sometimes I'm worn out, sometimes I can't keep the promises I make. But what we're looking at today, here in Acts 2, the promise that Jesus gives of the gift of the Father of the, from the Holy Spirit was a promise that could be depended on. It was a promise that was going to be delivered exactly as Jesus said it would do. It would empower the church, it would free them, to be able to live the lives that Jesus intended them to live. So we pick up this morning in Acts chapter 2, immediately fulfilling, or immediate following the fulfillment of this promise. The Holy Spirit being poured out on those in the upper room. Peter has already preached to the crowds. People have already laughed at them, thought they were drunk. But now, Peter has stood up and he has proclaimed about Jesus to them. And we get here right now as their response. In Acts chapter 2, verse 37, it starts and it says, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. 
Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. As a result of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we have to backtrack a little bit and realize that the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens for the early church because of the fact that they are following Jesus' directive. He told them, remember we were there last week, what were they supposed to do? They were supposed to wait in Jerusalem. They were supposed to wait in the city for this gift from the Father. And here they are. They're right there. As a result of this, this of these Christ-centered values, these spiritual practices from the early church. There's two powerful things that happen. The first thing is the church ends up with a tremendous influence with the people around them. Verse 47 tells us that the disciples enjoyed the favor of all the people. The followers of Jesus were impacting their city by embracing the life and teachings of Jesus. Secondly, we see that because they were obedient in Jesus' directive, and they were there to receive the gift of the baptism that the Lord added to their numbers daily those that were being saved. It was the disciples' courage, their faith, their good works, but ultimately it was their reliance on the Holy Spirit that led to God adding to the church daily. The kingdom had begun to grow. We in the church, we often jump back to Acts 2 and say, this is the way it should be. Look at the way God moved in them, how he moved through them. That's what church should look like. But too much we get caught up in the physical view of what is happening. We forget that it wasn't their activities. It wasn't a, any special programming that we, they were doing. It was the Holy Spirit and their faithfulness coupled together because it was their way of life. It, they didn't just go to church, they actually became the church. It encompassed everything they did. Because we look at the life of these new believers, and in these verses today that we read, we see a glimpse of what they valued and what they practiced. Their culture, their circumstances, yes, that influenced the structures and how they operated and how they employed. But what is more relevant to us is that they've, what they valued and practiced as disciples of Jesus. There was a devotion to God and to his word. There was fellowship with one another, radical generosity, and sharing. And they also prayed and worshipped together. The first one we're talking about here is a devotion to God and to scripture. In verses 42... 43 says they continue steadfastly in the apostles teaching and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in the prayers fear came to every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles so when we talk about what they taught often i've heard people like oh they taught the bible well they didn't have the whole bible at this point what they taught well, it's pretty simple. They taught what Jesus taught. They took his teachings and they passed them on to these other people, what they had learned from Jesus. Matthew 28, 
19 through 20 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. They taught what Jesus had taught them. They also taught from the scriptures they had, from the Jewish Torah, because it spoke of Jesus as well. In fact, Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, taught from the Old Testament as well. I mean, we just talked about this. On the walk to Emmaus, when he's talking to Cleopas and his friend, what does he start? He starts with Moses and works all the way through the prophets, explaining to them what was said in the scripture about himself. The Old Testament was the revelation of Jesus and God to us. It gives the background for what Jesus did on the cross for us. So, our Wednesday night Bible studies, if, you, if you're not coming, real quick, shameless plug here, you should come on Wednesday night if you can get here. If you're not there, you're missing out. We have had been able to spend entire discussions and evenings on, <coughs> excuse me, bite-sized portions of scripture and how it applies to us and how it applies in our lives. It's been great. We've got great teaching going on on Wednesday nights. I love that our kids are upstairs right now with Amanda and Robin, and they are getting an understanding of the Bible and getting them excited about the Word of God. And on Wednesday nights, the same thing is happening up there with Laura and the kids. We've got kids who are hungry for the Bible and hungry for learning. That is amazing. That is what we are seeing here from the early church. But we have to make sure that there's a distinction the disciples had about studying is one that we share as well. See, I've been in churches and I've met people who study the Bible for the sake of studying the Bible. And knowledge is great. It is. Absolutely. We should read the Bible. Every part of it. We need to know it. But they received it differently. They weren't looking for knowledge. They were hungry to know more of God. They were hungry to know more of Jesus. They wanted the truth that Jesus said in 832, that they will know that truth that will set them free. We have to be passionate about reading the word, not because it's God's words, but because of what it means when we plant it inside of us and let it live. Because that is what it is meant to do when we receive it. Whether we learn it in a class, a sermon, in our own Bible reading time, or some other way, we gain from the Bible and we learn to live in the freedom that God has for us. We need to be devoted to learning and teaching God's word with one another. Another thing that they had, they had fellowship. Now, I'm not talking potlucks. I'm not talking they got together and ate some pizza, although I'm sure they would have. There's two different dynamics here at work in the fellowship. You see, there's a social dynamic. It's a positive interaction with the other believers that can help us emotionally, mentally, physically, and in other ways as well. 
We were created as social beings who need to know that someone cares about us. We all, we all have that need. And if that need's not being met here in our church body, we start looking for it in other places. Just being together is every bit as important as any other aspect of ministry that we do as a church. But there's also a spiritual dynamic of fellowship as well. It's an interaction with other believers that helps us keep our eyes on Jesus. See, it's your job as a believer to help other believers keep their focus on Jesus and not on their problems, not on other people. God has designed church life in such a way that we need one another in order to grow spiritually and become all we can be. I hear all the time that, yes, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. I can believe in God. I can read my Bible at home. That is technically, yes, true. We're commanded not to forsake it because of this. You can be a Christian and do that, but you cannot be a healthy and growing Christian without the rest of the church body. You need each other to do that. Growing in your faith and in your spiritual life does not happen in a vacuum. It requires two or more different believers helping each other grow. And how well we build relationships with one another will have both a direct and indirect bearing on the growth of our church and on our own spiritual lives. This is true for all of us together and individually. In fact, one of the main purposes of communion has to do with our relationships with one another. And when you look at 1 Corinthians 11, you can see that the togetherness of the body of Christ is extremely important. Yes, communion reminds us that of Christ, and he went to the cross for us, and he rose from the dead, and that he's returning. But it also shows that we share something in that. That we share the blessing of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Communion, the root word, is to commune. Is to be together and do this. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, 42 says that they devoted their lives, or devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And most scholars will agree to tell you that this specifically is not a meal, but the Lord's Supper. They are taking communion, not just a meal. One reason for that is there is a definitive article, the, in front of breaking of bread. It wasn't just a generalized meal. It was something specific. If people broke together bread together these days, it could simply refer to having a Jewish meal together. However, when we come together and we have the breaking of bread, it is when we receive communion. And they didn't do this, you know, they didn't have a central gathering point. They did this in each other's homes. They went to each other's homes and did this together so that they could build relationship and fellowship, have an upward focus and build good friendships with one another. They gathered both socially and spiritually. Fellowship is important. We have to make sure that we stay together. We have to make sure that fellowship is a focus because of that 
need socially that we have that God has instilled and built into us, but also that spiritual need that God has built into us that we grow together. I always tell people we cannot have enough fellowship time. Now, of course, we are limited in time, but we all have time to fellowship at some point. Maybe we need to do more Christian fellowship. Maybe we need to have somebody over for dinner. If that's too big of a challenge, maybe you have them over for some coffee or hot chocolate, or it's summer, so make some iced tea and go out and sit. Build a campfire. Just be together. Play some board games. Do something. Be together. Unless it's Monopoly. Monopoly never ends well and everybody hates each other at the end of the game. So don't play Monopoly and expect your growth in your church there. The, the early church did things in fellowship. And they did them together. It was fellowship that strengthened the church. The third thing that we see that happens because of their obedience and because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and what is happening here is they experience the ability of radical generosity and sharing. Generosity and hospitality were very common things among early Christians. Now, I've heard people say that, oh, they sold everything they had. The Bible does not say that. Okay, I'm not asking you to sell everything you have. That would be truly radical generosity, and God may call you to do that, but I am not. There's no evidence here that the people sold everything they had, but what we see is it says those who had plenty were willing to part with some of it in order to help those who were in need. It appears that they overcame people's needs with generosity. And we don't have to read very far in the rest of the Bible to see that each person was still expected to be a good steward of the resources that God was blessing them with. For example, if one person was wasting the blessings of God through unwise spending and then coming to the apostles asking for financial assistance, they were most likely refused. The language of our text shows how closely these early believers lived out their faith. All of the believers were together. They had everything in common. They were in each other's homes daily, ate meals together, and celebrated the Lord's Supper together. They knew what was going on in each other's lives. Again, hospitality was evident. It was evident in that they invited one another into their homes to eat meals together, possibly on a daily basis. In our society today, we have gotten to the point where we don't like people knocking on our doors. We really don't. When somebody knocks on our door, we better be expecting them. We better know, and they better not show up like 20 minutes early. They can show up five minutes early. Maybe. We prefer them on time. We don't like unexpected visitors anymore. But how great would it be if we, our homes were so open to one another that any time we wanted, we could come knock on a door and be welcomed in, no matter what's going on, to be able to sit down and say, I need to talk about something. I need to talk about Jesus with somebody today. Something's going on. I need prayer. This is what was going on in their lives. Every day they were together. Every day it drove generosity 
not just with their property, not just with their finances, but with their time as well. They took the time to be with one another. They were praying and worshiping together daily. They lived in this sense of awe that God was going to continue to do miracles. Even though Jesus is gone, that God was going to continue to still operate because Jesus said that was going to happen. They were generous in their faith. Jesus had taught them how to be generous. In his three years that he walked with the disciples, he taught them how to be generous. They shared everything together. He shared their time with them. He shared with other people. He showed them what it looked like to be radically generous with his life. Not just what he had, but everything he was and who he was. One of the other things they took time to do is they prayed and they worshiped together. The growing church of the first century daily spent time in prayer and worship. Verse 42 says they devoted themselves to prayer. Verse 46 says they met together daily in the temple courts. Even going to chapter 3, we see that Peter and John were on their way to an afternoon prayer together at the temple when they encountered the crippled man. Their devotion to prayer set up the opportunity for miracles. It set up the opportunity for encounters with people who had not yet had that Jesus moment in their life. It set that up. Now, I, we don't live in a culture where we have a morning prayer and an afternoon prayer, uh, but the amazing thing is this. Because of Jesus' promise through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, you have become the temple of God in your own life. Which means wherever you are, wherever we gather together, we are gathering together in the temple of God. And when we pray together, that temple becomes the house of prayer that it was created to be. And good things are going to happen. Now, prayer was not new to them. Jesus had modeled it for them during his time. With them, they got the message Jesus intended. Jesus' point was prayer is important. And not just prayer by rote, not just prayer by memory, but prayer of passion, prayer of requests, prayer of specifics. Prayer is important. And I think sometimes we forget that part of the message here about how valued prayer is to the early church. We forget that very easily because we see the power of the Holy Spirit in operation and we forget that power of the Holy Spirit came, why? Because they were gathered together in prayer. They were gathered together in one accord in prayer, and the Holy Spirit was poured out onto them. Prayer is important. Jesus himself would pull himself away from crowds of people to spend time in prayer. And if he needed to spend time in prayer, how much more do we need it? Let me put it this way. Don't spend time in prayer unless you want to keep growing spiritually and be effective for the kingdom of God. Then you should spend time in prayer. If that is your goal, is to be more like Jesus, 
to grow spiritually and be an effective believer and follower of, follower of Christ, then you need to be in prayer daily. And we also need to be in prayer together. Acts 1.14 says they all joined together constantly in prayer. This means they came together and prayed together for God's will to be done in their lives. Prayer is an essential. It's a spiritual essential. Just like we need air to breathe and water to drink physically to stay alive, we need prayer in our lives to stay alive spiritually. We must never lose our awe of God and who he is. We must never forget that we worship a holy God who requires that from us. He has provided for us to be holy by standing with him. All of these things that go on, it's all prayer. It's all prayer. The, the wonders, the miraculous signs, the things that are done by the apostles. We read more and more healings, miracles. They lived with an expectancy that something great was going to happen because they were coming together in Christ's name. Now, even though it says that many miracles were performed by the apostles, I want to make sure and make something clear here. That doesn't mean that only the apostles were used in this capacity. We read about Stephen. We read about other believers who were used by God in miraculous fashion. Maybe God wants to use you and use you to let his authority and power to heal through you for other believers for other people but we can't get there if we're not praying prayer was essential for the believers we talked about the influence when I started of the early church as believers today we too can have a powerful influence on the world around us again our goal is not to copy and paste the structure of how the early church functioned into our present-day structures, because it wouldn't work. We don't have the same environment. We don't have the same culture going on. But what we can do is learn how the first disciples related to God and related to one another and the world and apply those principles in our own context as we love God, as we obey his word, as we walk in deep community with one another, give selflessly, and pray continually, we will once again start to see change in the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's all got to work together. So much time we pray for change, and God's telling us to use our hands and to use the gifts he's given us, that he's given us the ability to start to make that change happen, but we have to take the steps to do it. As, I, uh, as we wrap up today, and this message, we need to learn to apply these essentials and see what happens when believers love the Lord, are filled with the Holy Spirit, and are practicing these essentials of personal and church growth. This is what happened in the early church. I talked about having favor. Now, people were drawn to these believers because of what Christ was doing in and through them. They were also being relevant to the people of their culture. If they had been out of touch with daily life in Jerusalem, they would not have found favor 
with the people. If they would have withdrawn and just said, no, we are not Jewish anymore, this is us, and you guys go about, they're not out, they don't go to the temple, they don't meet the crimple ban, they aren't in positions where they can address the structures that need to be changed of their day. The work God does in us is a genuine work of grace. And we have to be real and in touch with where we're at to be a benefit to the people in our community so that our relationship with Christ can be authentic with them as well. Jesus never intended what he did on the cross and what he taught to become a stale religion. Never did. Jesus was a friend of sinners. He was loved by the common people, by the people who were down and out. But he was also loved by those who were in power who recognized the authority that he spoke in. We see Jesus interacting with both. Jesus just doesn't interact with people who are sick. He doesn't just interact with people who are poor. He interacts with government officials. He interacts with those who are wealthy. Anybody who seeks him, Jesus interacts with. We see that. Favor comes because the early disciples decided they were going to be a blessing in their community. The favor came through their blessing. Favor came by being good neighbor. Favor came because they decided to be part of a solution rather than part of a problem. If we want that same kind of favor in our community, in our area, we have to earn it in practical ways. We have to start looking for ways to have positive effects. Because when we start doing that, not only are we influencing people, but we're changing the spiritual climate as well. We have to get in that position where we can earn that favor. Another thing that they got was divine increase. They live, the way they lived their lives and sought God led to a divine increase. It says the Lord added daily those who were being saved. I like, what I love the most about this is I love how Luke words this. He did not say the apostles grew the church to 5,000 people. Why? Because it wasn't the apostles, it was Jesus. It says, the Lord added daily those who were being saved. People were turning away from their sins and being baptized every day because the good news was being told. Like Paul said, one plants, one waters, but God gives the increase. Let me encourage you to keep on being faithful and obeying God in what he asks you to do. Don't give up on sharing your faith. I know it can be frustrating. I invite people to church all the time. Only one person has shown up, and it doesn't really count because he was my friend already, and he drove here to see me preach. That's the only person, but I keep inviting. Why? Because everybody needs to hear. Don't get frustrated. It's, it's not a numbers and percentage game. It's a faithfulness game. 
It's all about you being faithful to what God has asked you to do. I had a discussion, I think it was with Mara. Um, there was a Facebook thing, and everyone was like, I need a church recommendation. We're like, oh, come to our church, come to our church, come to our church. And everybody else was like, no, come to our church. And everybody's like, my church is better. No, my church is better. And I'm like, I'm looking at it, and I go, at this point, I don't even really care what church they go to. I just really want these people to go to church somewhere, and I hope they find one. Um, but it looks awful, because there's 20 churches going, no, we're better than you. Our church is better than you. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I don't think this person may not end up in church anywhere at this point. Um, but we have to be able to get together. We have to be able to be faithful in our invitations. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That needs to be one of our prayers, that Jesus, do it here. Jesus, do it here in Burton. Do it here at Bethel. Do it here in my life. Build the church in me and through me because remember, it's not this building. It's not the number of people have. Right here, we have the church. Right here. These dynamics that were at work in the early church led to the Lord daily increasing their numbers. These things we have to take a look at and say, how are we doing? Are we learning, teaching, fellowshipping, praising, worshiping, expecting miracles? Are we sharing? Are we being generous? If we aren't doing these things, then we can't expect to see the Lord do an increase. And that's when we take a look at our individual lives. And we have to take a look at that. Because when you pray to God to make a change in your life, when you pray that, God, I want to learn more. I want to be able to teach more. I want to spend more time with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, I want a heart of praise and worship. Not just on Sunday, but as I go throughout my week. God, I want to expect miracles to happen. I want to see healings. I want to see addictions broken. I want to see miracles. When we start praying these prayers of asking God to give us an increase, a spiritual birthing happens in our hearts. And it will come. But we need to be faithful in our prayer of, this, of these things. Thank you for joining us here today on the Bethel Sermon Series podcast. We want to invite you to join us in person at 6029 Lapeer Road on Sundays at 1030 a.m. You can also find out more information on our Facebook page or go to our website at www.bethelfamily.live. That's www.bethelfamily.live for more information. God bless. Have a great week. Subscribe and join us back for next week. Thank you.